Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to Non-Contact Time, a podcast about all things educational with Kath and Hannah. I'm Kath. I'm Hannah. Welcome to the show. So what's on the agenda today, Hannah? On the agenda today in data, we are going to be talking about gamification and how that can be used in the classroom. In teaching and learning, we're going to speak to Ellie Dix, who's the founder of The Dark Imp. In pupils causing concern, you're going to hear some funny stories that have been sent in. And in any other business, you're going to hear more about how you can get involved in our podcast and what's happening in future episodes. So let's get on with the podcast. In data, we're going to be speaking about gamification and Kath, you've been reading some interesting articles. Yeah, so I've been doing some research on gamification because I was really, I came across it when I was looking at different ways of incorporating blended CPD into our kind of new way of working. And this idea of educating adults using a kind of game mindset kept coming up. And it's really, really interesting because I think it's something that could be translated into the classroom quite easily. When it's been used in industry outside of education, 80% of learners claim that learning would be more productive if it was more game oriented. And 67% of students reported that a gamified course was more motivating than a traditional course. So the idea of gamification is that you're creating an environment that has a set of challenges, it has levels, just like a game that you'd play maybe on the Xbox or on your phone. Um, It has the idea of competitiveness. So there has to be some sort of reward or some sort of um, final status that you're working towards and it needs to have some sort of leaderboard so that people can see how they're moving up rankings etc. One of the interesting things about gamification is the idea of having collaboration so having teams working together as well as individuals because um, you could be working with other say staff in your school and you're working up the leaderboard in terms of your learning or application of learning that you've been having um, as part of your CPD and what I kept thinking was 
This idea of gamification is really motivating for adults. This might be a really good way or a really good strategy that you could use, say, with disadvantaged boys or disengaged students, uh, because that idea of playing a game is something that students really, really love. The psychology of playing a game, that competitiveness really helps them. Um, the other part of gamification that's really interesting is that it has to have purpose, autonomy and mastery, which is the things that we're kind of always asking students to do. And it also allows for you to kind of identify different learning needs. We're always looking at learning needs in terms of visual, kinesthetic and auditory learners. But this kind of looks at things like the socializers, the free spirits, the achievers, the philanthropists, the players, these disruptors. So the different kind of personality types that you could engage in different ways in the classroom, which I think actually is a more broad kind of psychological look at different learners rather than just thinking of how um, information is taken in. So if we thought about the different ways that you could use gamification, theory in the classroom. It could be thinking about ways of rewarding students about building up behavior. It could be a way of measurement or it could be the mechanics of actually putting the game together like visual storytelling, response to objects, disincentives, rewards, social feedback and all of those sorts of things. Because I know when I'm in the classroom and students, particularly boys, are talking about their weekend or they're talking about things that they like, that idea of socialising over a game, so they're talking to their friends, they're strategising together, they're showing each other, they're modelling behaviours to each other to make themselves better at the game. If we could then translate that into a classroom environment, we might engage some of these um, students who are feeling like they, they just don't really get what school's all about. Hannah, do you have any examples of how you use games or some sort of competition in your classroom? I love games and competition. I was doing a bit of research about engaging boys and there's a lot about competition and this thirst to be first. So I've noticed whenever I do something in my classroom that is a competition, it's always the boys that put the hand up and they're like, pick me, pick me, because <laughs> they want to be the ones that have a shot at coming first. So we played a game today. I found out students really struggle going from A minor to G on the ukulele. So we had a bit of a competition to see who could get from A minor to G as many times as, as possible in 30 seconds. So we put the countdown clock on and we played the music and we, we allowed some students to have a go. And funnily enough, only the boys put the hands up, which I thought was really interesting. And I said the winner would get 50 points. So I gave the winner 50 points. But it's really interesting how boys respond to that and girls res have responses to other things. I'm not saying, you know, it's all the time. But no. this, this competition, I think, is a real easy win to engage boys into the curriculum. And it provokes some kind of excitement. So whenever I say to the students, right, we're going to play a game, to embed learning and get a greater understanding of the topic, all the boys are really excited. Girls like it as well, but the, you know, you hear the boys going, yes! <laughs> <laughs> they do, they get, they really celebrate when they get into the kind of that competitive spirit. 
Yeah. I was really surprised the other week. I was talking to some of my students about competition. It wasn't anything to do with the podcast. Like it came up quite organically. And um, one of the one of the female students I teach was going on about how she always has to win. And I said, well, if I ever played a board game against you, we'd have a problem because I don't care about winning. I am one of those people. I I when I look at the gamification kind of social aspects, I'm definitely a disruptor. I have no interest in winning, but I like to mess with people to stop them from winning quicker, <laughs> which I know is not the right mind frame to have, but I do like to kind of mess with people. So if, if you've ever played the board game Risk, I usually put all my players on Madagascar or Japan because they're kind of isolated islands. But if someone's trying to get that continent, it means they never can get them because I've got an entire army on Madagascar <laughs> and I end up destroying their army and then someone else wins, which means I'm not serving my own purpose, but I just like doing it. It's kind of funny. The tantrums that come about are because of it. <laughs> <laughs> but that also demonstrates a greater understanding of the game because not only are you understanding that you're going to do this, but you're not going to win, but it's also a further understanding of strategy and learning how mm. to strategically either knock other players out or get to the top spot which is in itself another skill that is learned by this whole idea of gamification because I do think it is really important if you embed something like a game into your curriculum that looks at all the, the aspects of whatever topic that you're teaching it allows students to learn something in so many different ways so they're doing it they're talking about it that they might have to create something for it and it does help embed knowledge in a in a deeper way, particularly, you know, at the end of a topic when you've got to summarise something. It's a much more fun and engaging way of summarising a topic than it is to sit down and do an hour exam in silence. I've been reading Ellie's book, so we're talking to Ellie later in the show. And one of the things I love about um, what she's talking about in the book is giving students a safe place to take risks. And I think that's super important. Um, so in her book, The Board Game Family, she's talking about if you play these kind of board games with your children or with family members, they love you regardless. So you can try the kind of disruptor persona and be quite I don't know, malicious even in your <laughs> tactics. But at the end of the game, it's just a game and they still love you. But it means that you get to kind of understand different ways of communication different roles that you can take on because you could play as someone who's a member of the team and is really like up for doing things regardless of reward or you could be just a disruptor or you could be playing to win because you just want to you're an achiever and you want to actually win the game every single time um, and it's also interesting she talks about in her book that you never let children win for the sake of winning you should let them lose um, so that they learn how to be a good loser, but also because it feels so much better when you've won and it's because of the things that you've done. Yeah, I, I do think it's a really important signifier of how well a student can communicate. If you've got a student in your class who is used to articulating themselves in the format of a game and mm. you do it regularly, it's absolutely bolting on those extra opportunities for communication and allowing them to learn about strategy, learn about risk, learn about different roles within 
a safe place and it's so important. When do you think we could use these types of games or projects with students? With everything going to remote learning, it's kind of the perfect time to set up some sort of e-learning platform where there was a way of students seeing a leaderboard. It might even be just a leaderboard in students completing home learning or remote learning tasks, or it could be some sort of reward and recognition for that remote learning opportunity or students doing things through a learning platform, if there was some way of being able to chart a success. Because if you are remote learning, if you're a child that's at home and you're remote learning for whatever reason, you don't really know what's going on at school and it would make them feel a little bit more part of the community if they could interact with one another and say, well, I'm on this level. Like, well, I'm working towards this level. How did you get to that level? It could spark a conversation quite naturally that didn't really occur if we just let them do things in isolation. I think it is a really good idea to do with online learning because they are in isolation a lot of the time and to see the progress that they're making and rewarding them for that is a great opportunity. What's your favourite board game, Hannah? I play lots of cards um, and that's what I used to like to do with my family. I was the elder sibling so if I, I could always understand the rules a bit better than the other two and so I'd probably win most of the time <laughs> I'm definitely you know a sore I, loser <laughs> what I love about playing cards which I think people don't realize is when you have conversations while you're playing cards you can actually talk about things that are quite difficult to talk about because you're not making eye contact the whole time and you're not you're doing something with your hands constantly so you can, yeah, I found um, that when I need to have a difficult conversation with my husband, I, we play gin <laughs> and <laughs> we'll literally be playing cards and we'll talk through like loads of things or problems we need to solve. And we find it so much easier after playing a game of cards. Yeah, it, I, it's good because you're not, you're not focusing on that difficult subject to communicate about. So it would be, you know, a great opportunity for parents if they know that their child is struggling with something to play a game but then drop yeah. something else into the conversation as if, you know, it's a natural thing and the child's not concentrating on it as much and it's not as much of a pressure. Yeah, definitely. But my favourite board games are all the word games. I love Boulder Dash and I love Scattergrees. I like those kind of games. Boulder Dash more because it's just a game about lying, really, and I just love it. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> I just like lying. <laughs> I like the lying bit. <laughs> well, you make up definitions for words but you have to try and guess what the real one is. But I like the kind of making up silly um, definitions for words that are ridiculous. In Teaching and Learning, we're going to be talking to Ellie Dix from The Dark Imp. She has this amazing independent board game company and a fantastic book called The Board Game Family. Have a listen. In five words, describe teaching to you. An opportunity to connect with and grow children. That's probably not five words, but... And she you know. is fine. <laughs> That's fine. We, we're very um, casual with our five words. <laughs> I like it. I really like that. Um, in five words, describe the best type of student to teach. One that is curious, that needs someone to help them that needs someone to love them really and is responsive and ready to to learn and i know this is now a lot more than five words uh 
but of course we don't always know that they're going to be like that at the beginning so the best students are the ones that we uh, that, that that come with us as we try yeah. and as we try and teach them that we manage to get through to them and that they come with us I always say that to students that there's nothing better than watching a child, oh, getting goosebumps talking about it, grow and change over time. When you've taught a child that's like really difficult or really reluctant to learn and then they flourish, it's so exciting, isn't it? It is. And I think that that's the power of being a teacher, that you have the you have the opportunity to do that for children that other people haven't done that with. You know, children whose parents haven't done that, children who maybe other teachers have given up on. Those are the ones that you can help uh, even more than all the other students in front of you. And we have a responsibility to do that. It's really important. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. Um, so what is your classroom pet peeve? Oh, it's, it's pro am I allowed to say teachers? No, I don't mean teachers in general. <laughs> I don't mean teachers in general. This is, I'm a very pro teacher person. I mean, uh, teachers with low expectations, um, really, that's what I mean, I suppose, you know, that we forget that, or it's easy to forget that um, children come to us needing to be taught not only the curriculum, but how to behave, how mm. to operate uh, with other people, how to respond, how to engage in different tasks. And uh, I think that some teachers are closed to that and they think that their only job is to teach. That's my pet peeve, teachers who only want to teach the curriculum and think that that's their full job. It's not. A te teaching is so much, as we know, teaching is so much more than that. And those teachers are kind of failing their children. And that's, that's maybe harsh, but that's true. Um, that, you know, that we have a larger responsibility than delivering a curriculum. I totally agree with that. And, that's and really... On the flip, yeah. And on the flip side, my favourite thing about classrooms is teachers as well. You know, I don't want, I, I don't want to, people think I'm anti-teacher. <laughs> no, it's so true because you also meet people that when you realise, oh, wow, I should be doing that too. That's so great because you have so many great examples of people doing that as well. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So what do you do to look after your mental health or unwind? I play games, <laughs> which won't surprise you. Nice. So that's what I mainly do. Um, I play games with my family. I play games by myself. And I'm talking about board games. I'm not talking about video games. For me, I know other people do that. Um, but yeah, I play board games and I find that that's a brilliant way of connecting. I also sing. So those two things together, singing and playing board games. Oh, and swimming when I'm allowed to at the moment. Oh, yes. We've been swimming, uh, Paul and I and one of our sons have been swimming in uh, lakes. So we've been doing open water swimming, which is sometimes absolutely glorious and sometimes horrific. Because it's so <laughs> I, don't I can know imagine. Sometimes that's good for my mental health and sometimes not so much. But yeah, I, I try and make time for all of those things. And of course, just spending time with the family. Yeah, love that. And uh, what's one thing you'd like to see changed about education? Oh, only one. Um, <laughs> I th you know, I think it's the, the sort of the, the classic pressure on um, 
the, the delivery of the curriculum and the standards that we're all held accountable to, the fact that teachers uh, from the leadership within schools and they're under pressure, you know, they, our schools leaderships are under pressure to uh, to add, add value, to um, drive the curriculum, to have you know, improved results. And that, that pressure is coming down from government. We know that. That's what needs to change so that the teachers in the classroom do not have that pressure delivered on them by their leadership. And we see examples of brilliant leaders all over the place who are managing that challenge from above and still leading in the way they know they should, um, oh. you know, and supporting teachers in the in the way that they should. But I think that's the single thing that needs to change, really, which will have this huge knock-on effect. Is that school is more, and education is more than exam results, and it, it used to be. Uh, less about that and more about other things and the pressure of having to drive forward for these exam results all the time is has just had so much impact on the individual child the individual teacher you know all levels of leadership and it's it, it's um taken it, it's hard to stand up to you know when you're a teacher or a leader and you know what you should be doing for your um children but you, all of these other pressures are you know asking for other things as well or asking you to prioritize other yeah. things it takes a very strong person to stand and say no this is what i should be doing this is what's right i need to love these children i need to show them that i care about them and that is more important than delivering this maths lesson today and it's hard to have that strength to stand up and do that yeah i'd absolutely agree with you it feels like it also crept up on us this whole testing kind of culture because I came to the UK I must be it's a long time ago 15 or so years ago and there wasn't as much of the focus on examination and then all of a sudden we look at us now and go how did we get here and it's so gradual that we weren't actually able at any point to go let's stop this it's not working yeah I think you know there have been lots of small changes and some big ones you know, there have been some uh, education secretaries we could all point the finger at and who have been responsible for the larger leaps towards that kind of culture. Um, and yeah, it, but these things take quite a long time to filter down to the classroom teacher and to change oh. the lives of the classroom teacher and the children. But that's what you see. That's why it feels like it takes a long time uh, oh. because we get protected at various levels above us and things take a while to disseminate down. Um, but but yeah, I think it's, it's been quite damaging. And, and I hate hearing about um, secondary schools who are starting to deliver the GCSE curriculum in year eight because they're worried about the time they've got. And it just feels like it's all back to front, really. Feels a bit like yeah. they're trying to change the outcomes and the experiences of children through standardised tests as opposed to actually nurturing them and caring about them and giving them a, a whole rounded aspect of you exactly. know, what life. is education for it's not for the test the tests aren't for the children the tests are for you know government to say oh look you know this is the standards are getting better or or, or whatever it is or it, it's not it's not doing the children any good to, to have these levels and levels of testing um, and we know that as teachers we know that but it's so hard to fight against it because everything is geared towards requiring that
especially when that's how you judge a school or a teacher or a student um obviously that needs to be flipped in order for the system to change whether that yeah. will happen <laughs> well it's 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 difficult isn't it i mean i think that I, I don't know what the solution is but i think you know rewinding some of the things that have been put into place in the last few years and you know the reliance on testing at the different ages you know gccs and a levels is enough we don't need anything else you know and even that you know in fact my yeah I, I don't know we don't need all the other exams you know when primary schools you know having to do sats and then um uh, you've got different different schools that have end of year exams all the way through even primary schools it just feels and all they're doing is preparing them for exams they're not preparing them for uh, life they're not preparing them really for the next stage of their education apart from the fact that the next stage of their education might need exams as well it just seems like we're not actually training our children to equip them for what they need in the real world you know um actual jobs aren't like that so who, <laughs> apart from maybe doctors who have to keep going through this rigorous examination process for many many years and even when they've been doing it for you know if they've been a gp for, for 40 years they're still having to do a certain amount of um professional development at least accreditation which is fine Apart from doctors who have this protracted period, really hardly any other profession requires examination. You know, it's not you know, on a regular basis. It's not preparing us for, and, and our children for what they need when they get into the workplace. You know, that it, that's why it's all back to front. If we had that kind of culture in the workplace, then it would be more understandable. Yeah, because if you want your teams to do well in the workplace, you don't give them an end of year test. You ensure that your performance management is robust enough to deal Obviously. with it. Yeah, exactly. It's continual coaching and development and always looking at what they need and where they're at. And this, you know, feedback loop that goes on all the time and, you know, delivering the right kind of training and support for each person. And of course, we talk about differentiation, but it's very hard to differentiate when they're all sitting at the same exams at the end of the day. I'm not suggesting that we get rid of GCSEs and A-levels. We do need some some type of qualifications. Um, but it's it's difficult to, um, to to prepare children for the workplace when that is our only focus. I think a lot of teachers will agree with that. I think it's really interesting that you've gone from teaching into another career. So can you tell us about your experiences in education? OK, so my, I come from a family of teachers. My dad was a head teacher. Uh, actually, he left. Um, he, got, he retired when he was a head teacher of a secondary school and left with stress, unsurprisingly, when you're a head teacher of a secondary school, and started up his own business um, when he was in his late 40s, no, maybe 50s. And that was a sort of model for me as well, like, you know, that kind of transition, I suppose, uh, though not the whole retiring due to stress bit. Um, and my mum was a, a a teacher of teachers. She taught at Homerton College, uh, trained, you know, on the primary on primary program. So I was surrounded by teaching from an early age. And honestly, I come from a whole family of teachers, as many teachers do. Um, and I went into teaching. I became a drama teacher. I was I was a head of drama in a secondary school as an NQT. I set up a drama department um, that were in a school that had never before taught drama 
So it was, there were no, there was no established, there wasn't even a drama space, you know, that, that, you know, a lot of the work I was doing over the summer was just getting a room ready. And I had to write everything, you know, everything was written from scratch, the whole curriculum, the, um, you know, for, for, I taught every child in Key Stage 3 and I set up a GCSE group. I had no uh, real mentor other than the head teacher who was very positive and, and proactive and wanted drama to be in school. But it was a school that was in difficult circumstances and the children were not used to the kind of learning you do in drama. So I remember that first week was so awful because the first thing they said was, oh, no chairs. Well, I'm not sitting on the floor. <laughs> and that was it. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not sitting on the floor. And they're just like, arms crossed, standing there. And you know, young NQT didn't know, didn't really know what to do. So I, I did. I was. I, I built up the, the drama department there. Um, I, I ended up having a few other teachers that were delivering some lessons. I also delivered maths there to GCSE reset A level pupils, um, and that was uh, also very eye opening because I learnt then how little. So I thought I was so naive. I thought I'm going to teach. These children, I'm, I was so com overconfident, right? I'm going to teach these children, I'm going to go in with the hardest thing in GCSEs and I'm going to nail it. We're going to do simultaneous equations in the first lesson. And I'm going to get, because I'm a really good teacher, I'm get, they're all going to understand it by the end. And uh, I had, you need to have that confidence sometimes because otherwise you don't do anything. But I, that first lesson, I really started to understand how low their level of mathematical understanding was and we actually got back we i kept working backwards and backwards and backwards you know simultaneous equations went back to just equations went back to base you know the concept of algebra went back to numbers and i ended up by drawing a number line on the board and i was putting numbers in and i was saying well where's minus two and where's three quarters and getting them to come up and draw things on that's how far we went back in a single 40 40 minute lesson and there were many children that couldn't do that and there i was oh. at the beginning of the lesson thinking uh i'm going to teach them simultaneous equations and they're going to get it when they didn't understand number lines and they you know and and so that was humbling and uh eye-opening and it really communicated to me that we need to sometimes teach in a different way and part of uh, my teaching in drama as you can probably imagine was always to do with games i come from a big game playing family and so it's definitely part of my DNA from when I was young and part of, you know, and so the way I started teaching maths was through games as well. And children, as we know, children are excited by uh, things that are a bit different, activities that are a bit different, things that challenge them a little bit or are fun. And we know that if they're enjoying themselves and are having fun when they're learning, they are more open to learning. So I was using games in drama to, to teach these kids who are very close to the subject. I was using games in maths to teach these kids who had no clue about uh, maths, mathematical concepts at all, really. And that sort of uh, using games for education has really stuck with me the whole time. So um after a few years of being in that position in that school i left and had my first child uh and instead of going back into school 
joined my husband Paul, who you might know, Paul Dix. Um, he's written quite a lot of books on behaviour, he's fairly well known. His latest book is When the Adults Change, Everything Changes, so you might have come across that. Um, we dis uh, He had set up a company, Pivotal Education, with a friend of his, but the problem with it was that they were both very similar. So they're both quite performance-based, training deliverers, quite um, you know, all about connecting with the audience and not at all about writing down people's email addresses and making sure they're paying their bills, right? So I started working, so it all collapsed in about 2004 and we decided and, and the other partner left and I came in and we decided to build it up while I was at home with um, what was one son and then became two sons um, and that developed into what Pivotal Education became and so I was leading the I, I was kind of leading the vision and the direction of the company I was leading all the organizational things I did everything I mean I did everything except the delivery and the uh and the kind of construction of the programs really so you know all the all the all the um the people management stuff in the office you know we ended up with a team of 15 that were employed and another 15 freelance trainers all the sales and marketing or the accounts all the finance and the vision very importantly the vision of where we're going and um so i was responsible for creating uh, you know, for saying to Paul, right, we need to do online courses. And this was in about 2007. So it was before it was normal. Um, and I was doing all this research about how to put things online and what platforms would work. And we got our online courses out there before other people in education were doing that. You know, one, uh, we were, we, we delivered the first, we created the first um, train the trainers, you know, instructor training program behavior management it was and it was really exciting and we did and in 2017 we did something really crazy which i haven't seen anyone else do which was deliver live inset on a sort of live video link up but to multiple schools at the same time so we had 14 schools on an inset day in september you know the big september inset day some of them weren't even in england like we had international schools and we and we were on the, on the big screen in all these different schools for a whole day of live training it was like a full inset day with online with um sort of handheld uh you know on on like app-based uh interactive groups so you could go into groups of people in other schools you could write on interactive boards and i mean when we did the test the whole thing crashed but fortunately it was it was pretty smooth on the day and those sorts of you know ability to be innovative ability to think about how you're getting the message to as many teachers as possible pivotal allowed us to do that so we grew the company to a state where we had a lot of real fans actually and it was exciting to be able to affect that many students through affecting that many teachers and and really training them about how to uh how to not just manage the behavior because it's not about managing behavior it's about influencing behavior it's about um you know care actually caring about your students first and foremost and managing the relationships and, and proact being proactive about those relationships even when they're really tricky 
Um, so we, we know that we changed a lot of people's teaching careers and lives and uh, because they told us all the time and therefore we influenced lots of children and that was hugely rewarding and liberating. Um, th throughout that I was also doing some, you know, I was running some training in maths, for maths teachers to get them to teach maths a bit more actively and creativ creatively, that was all games based. Um, and then when I left Pivotal, uh, so we sold Pivotal uh, to an American company in 2017 and Paul and I left in 2019. And uh, I then I set up my own company doing on the face of it something completely different. Uh, the Dark Imp is a board game publishing company and I design board games. Uh, when I say board games, I don't mean uh, always games that have a board they might not have a board, they might be card games or they might be party games, but the, the board games is the sort of overall title for it. But all the games that I create are for families. Um, and you know, they're, they're, this, they're designed for uh, multi-generational play. So they're not designed for just adults to play and they're definitely not designed for just children to play. I mean, I think that's one of the misconceptions about family games is that people think, oh, they're gonna be boring for adults. They're not, they're for the whole family and that's the point. And um, actually I say on the face of it, it's completely different. But of course it's not because everything we were doing, you know, everything I have been doing through my career in teaching and with Pivotal has been about how to communicate and how to bring people together, how to uh, strengthen relationships, how to spark conversation and how to get people uh, involved in activity uh, that, that who might otherwise struggle. Uh, so board games is just another vehicle to do that really. The first thing that came to my mind when you said games in maths is as a, a music teacher, the thing that ignites the most amount of interest and maybe controversy and excitement is when you say, should we play a game? <laughs> and all the kids just go, yeah, it doesn't matter what the game is. It could be anything. But you know why? It's because games are low risk, right? It, the whole concept of the game is that it doesn't matter what the outcome is. Uh, and we know as teachers, we've, we've, we, we know this to be true because we keep hearing it, that what we need in our children or to develop in children is one of the things is resilience. But it's really hard to help children to develop resilience because to do that, they need to be put in situations where they're failing. And it's kind of against what we're trying to do as teachers to put them in positions where they're failing. We're always trying to help them succeed. But board games and any kind of game uh, you know, it has this sort of, uh, you know, if it's a game, you might fail, right? You might not win, you might lose. If you're playing a board game that's competitive and there's four of you playing it, for example, three of you are going to lose. And that's just the way it is. That's, um, you know, it's, it's all, you know, caught up in, in the idea of the game. And so it's very low risk for children and it gives them the opportunity to fail over and over again and it gets them comfortable with failing and it's it's exciting and it's liberating if you're playing a game the expectation is that it's just for fun so the outcome doesn't really matter and therefore you're in a better state by which to experiment with things also games are uh, short term you know we're going to play a game it's going to last 20 minutes uh, you or it might even last two minutes 
and you can tr if you if it's a game you played before you can try something different from what you tried before and it gives you an opportunity to do all to go on the, all these different routes to experiment with tactics you know and um to see what works this time and that's liberating because the outcome doesn't matter no teacher is going to write down what's happened as a result of a game uh in their mark book one of the things that we talk about a lot, um, particularly for my subject, is about engaging boys. And one of the things that we often talk about with boys is that they really respond to competition. So when you're designing these games, are you always thinking about the competitive element and how it can be played and how it can be used in lots of different ways? Yes, I mean, the whole competitive, competitive element is really interesting. Uh, you know, I, I've written a book which is the called The Board Game Family Reclaim Your Children from the Screen and it's designed for parents but there's loads in there for teachers as well uh, which, which is applicable to using games in school um, and one of the biggest problems that parents have is this level of competition and it's not always from the children <laughs> Sometimes it's another adult in the house that causes this kind of culture of competition. And so it's a very good thing in many ways that, you know, that, that boys particularly want to compete and want to try and, you know, get a little bit better than each other the whole time. But it can also be a negative thing when it, when it, um, when it matters more than anything else. When the outcome is more important to that person than enjoying playing the game, that kind of competition becomes problematic. So as adults who are either teachers or parents who are running games, we have to be careful to set the culture so that we are not just, so, so, there's, so we are eliminating any kind of reward for winning, right? So if you win the game, and you get then you get a reward like if you're playing a game in your classroom and the, and if you win you get also get something else you know whatever that happens to be you know you get to be uh, even if it's probably even if it's something like being first in the dinner queue right um then it's not possibly rewarding the right kind of thing we want people to play and we want people to compete but we want them to do that using good sportsmanship right that's yeah. got to be the most important thing so in my book i talk a lot about in fact i use the word gamesmanship but it's the same kind of concept as sportsmanship you know you're a as the adult you are you're not even if you're playing the game you are not playing that your more important game is to play the game of keeping everyone playing the game um I don't know if you're aware of Simon Sinek. He's a sort of a business, uh, he's a speaker and write author and he writes business books. And he talks about the infinite game and it's, and it's applicable to business, but it's applicable to schools and to, um, and to all sorts of aspects of our life. And I think it's really useful when we're thinking about, you know, just playing a game on the table. Why are you doing that as a parent, for example? Well, you're doing that to have to bring your family together and to strengthen the relationships and to have some family time. You're not doing that so that you win that game. You know, that's <laughs> so your focus, and I'm not saying that parents shouldn't compete equally with their children. They absolutely should. Don't let your children win. Don't rigged victories are ridiculous. But you should always have your eye primarily on uh, 
how am I going to get my children to play a game again? How, how am I going to make this part of the culture in my home, part of our, you know, what we do at home and uh, a routine and something, something special for us? And if you have lots of arguments and table flipping and screaming and whining and shouting, it's much less likely to become part of the culture. So your first primary uh, task is to keep everyone playing games. And therefore, you shouldn't be reward. You shouldn't be rewarding the child who's won and telling them they don't have to clear up. You should be rewarding the ch the child who has praised someone else for their excellent decision during a game, or ha you know said well done to somebody if they managed to do something. Who has not screamed and shouted at a moment when they've been disappointed? Who has uh, you know sat patiently if somebody's taken a long time thinking about what they're going to do? And it's the same for teachers. We should be rewarding excellent sportsmanship and not rewarding, even inadvertently, the child who wins. I uh, come from a position of being a really bad loser. <laughs> and I really like that. I... <laughs> Hannah's a terrible loser. <laughs> I really like the idea that it's all about enjoying the journey and taking part is the fun part. And I think that's what games kind of do. It, it eliminates that win or lose culture, even though there are winners and there are losers. It's about enjoying the journey together. Yes, it is. And it's not about actually eliminating that win or lose culture, but it's about minimizing it so that it's not the most important thing. You know, you should be able to sit down and play a game as a family and enjoy it. At regardless of what happens at the end and there are games that you can choose that do that better than others so you know, if you don't have that kind of experience in your family home then you're possibly choosing probably choosing the wrong kind of games to play and yeah. I'm I'm all for competition I think it's I think it's really exciting to I've been we, 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 at home, we play a game called Terraforming Mars, and it is a really complex game, and it's not known as a family game. It's not definitely not the first game you should go and Google and pick up if you haven't played lots of games. But we've played lots of games, and my children have been playing games since they were really young. And now they are 17 and 13, and are playing complex games and actually they're playing more complex games than i want to play a lot of the time but what this one game terraforming mars is uh is a, a real favorite in our family now my younger son almost always loses uh, but it but at no stage have i ever suggested to my elder son who almost always wins um that he should let his brother win or that he shouldn't be trying to play his best you know these get these games allow us to develop skills to try out new things to um, experiment with things and we gain skill as we play and that's one of the you know marvelous things about uh, playing board games is we're not just playing for the sake of playing uh, you know they're doing all sorts of other educational social you know learning things for us uh, and yeah and, and so it's about Yes, it's about uh, competition. It's got to be about competition because otherwise, you know, we're not measuring this, the improvement that's happening within ourselves. 
but also it's got to be fun. So it's a balance of those two things. Also, there are cooperative games that you can get where everyone plays together against the game and you're all trying to win against the game. In some families that works really well uh, because they really like working together. And in other families, that's really challenging because they'd much rather be making their own decisions. It's easier to make your own decisions and have ownership for your own uh, downfall than it is to be uh, going along with someone else's decision, even if you happen to win. So it depends on the balance. And that's something that we're working on in our family. <laughs> <So> <laughs> we're playing more cooperative games at the moment because uh, my younger son in particular finds them quite challenging because he'd rather make his own mistakes than, than listen to his brother's ideas. So one of the things I was thinking about when you're talking about board games was how much I learn from other people by watching them play and if you play board games with different people you actually see how they think in a different way to the way you think which is what I love about board games. Um, is that something that you look for when you're trying to design a game? Yeah so I mean one of the one of the things that I that I try to do is make games where there are lots of different kinds of tactics that you can take or strategies that you can take and th that you can develop over time and that you can uh, learn over time. So you might have different players taking different uh, strategies and you can watch what they're doing and see how they are benefited or not through those decisions. That doesn't always mean that you're going to be able to take on that strategy and be super successful next time, but it but it lets you um, it, it lets you think about other things you could do. And that's one of the reasons why I try and tell uh, parents and teachers or whoever is teaching the game not to teach strategy because it's such a wonderful discovery thing to be able to find out yourself. It doesn't matter if you don't win. It doesn't matter if you don't win the first 10 times you play because someone else is more experienced. What matters is that you have that discovery process yourself so that you can you know find out all these things and learn them for yourself and of course you know one of the one of the lovely things about board games playing board games is they spark conversation and you talk about the game you talk about um you talk about the game even afterwards you know after the game's been cleared away sometimes we even find ourselves talking about games we've played when we were children that's quite common you know do you remember that day when this happened so these these are and, and one of the things that we want as parents when and and as teachers as the children get older it becomes sometimes harder to get those conversational hooks in the first place we know that uh, when we've got good relationships with teenagers we can that's so important for them uh, when when they're if they're hours or if they're hours in school but actually knowing what to say to start those conversations in the first place can sometimes be difficult. So when you've had a shared experience of playing a game together, that's something you can talk about. And when you are playing a game together, that gives you a frame uh, of, you know, of action to, that will spark conversation during the activity. And um, my thought's gone. Okay. Well, okay. I can't remember right. what your question was. Um, neither can I actually. <laughs> it wasn't one written down because I just, yeah, came off the cuff. I did want to ask you though, what was your first 
um, vintage board game that really made you go, I really love board games? When I was a child, we had a game called Railway Rivals and uh, it involves a map. And the first one we had was a map of Southeast Kent, I think, or no, Kent. It went up to London, so it must have been the whole of Kent and a bit of Sussex, I think, and London. Uh, and it's a hex map with, it's just black and white, and everybody has a pen, uh, and you are creating tr train lines between the different cities. And that's the first half of the game, is creating your train track, and the second half of the game is running trains on the train track. And it was so different from what any of my friends had. It actually won the very highly coveted best award in gaming uh, called the Spiel des Jahres, which is the German Game of the Year award, um, in oh, something like 1985. And we only knew about it because my mum read maths magazines and teaching magazine. And this game was created by a teacher designed to teach uh, geography, I think, to his pupils. And he wanted to, you know, find a way to teach it more um, that would connect with them better. So that's, he created Railway Rivals, went on to win this huge award. And it's one of those games that sort of is not in the public uh, awareness much anymore. It's, it's out of print. Although just before I wrote my book, I did a, a sort of audit in my family. There are five brothers and sisters and of my parents. Um, and I asked everybody how many Railway Rivals maps they had and to tell me which ones they had. And we, and we en ended up 38 maps we have in the family. <laughs> we, there are four different copies of South Sweden for some reason. God knows why. <laughs> You know, it's just it's that this kind of game that has become part of our family history and culture, I suppose. Um, but that, that's a, a good example of a, a game that's just a bit different that gives you so many options. Like if you if you think about it, you're rolling a dice to to um, decide how how long your track can be, but you have many many choices. You are choosing where to put your track. You're choosing what your strategy is. Are you going to try and get lots of towns early? Are you going to try and create a whole line across the country and just put yourself in a position to get to the towns later? Are you going to get those key routes that go between mountains that other people won't be able to get later if you've got them? You know, what's your strategy? So there's a huge amount of choice. And I think that was one of the problems with vintage games. Many of them are just sort of roll and move and there's very little choice. And that's very dull and not at all interesting. Looking at the kind of transferable skills and the communication skills and all that, that board games have to offer, yep. what do you think about computer games? Ah, well, they, I'm, I should start by saying I am not a computer game player myself. So anything I say is in the frame of reference that it's not my bag. Um, that being said, I think if we're talking about family gaming, because that's certainly not something that really happens in school, um, there are advantages that board games have over uh, over video games quite 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 a lot, in my opinion. Uh, the the biggest thing really is that uh, when you're playing a board game together, you are your focus is on everybody else around the table. It's not on the uh, the, the screen. 
and that's 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 a huge thing you know even if you're sitting playing video games with other people you're sitting in a line looking at the screen you're not sitting at each other looking at each other it's easier to pause a um to pause while you're playing um a board game and to chat and to let that go off you know in in the in the natural you know in a natural conversation than it is to play a video game where you actually physically have to pause the game in many in many situations um, i think also the content and i know there's also sorts of different kinds of uh, content in video games but a lot of it is quite aggressive and a lot of it is quite um is about shooting people or things and you that might not be what you want your children to be doing all the time whereas board games have got just this huge variety of different kinds of things which i think is greater than video games and the other wonderful thing about board games is that they're actually there like they're physically present it's not a digital world it's a world that you've got in front of you and the components are things that you could hold and and that may seem like a small thing but it's not i mean anyone who's been shopping at clothes shopping with their children where their children just want to touch everything they go past knows actually that physical connection to things is quite important so if you've got a board game with uh, lots of little cubes they're going to end up stacking them lots of little wooden meeples they're going to end up stacking them you know oh you know there's sort of delights and squeals when you've got these lovely tiles that you get in some games that feel you know just gorgeous and look pretty in front of you on the table that is something that you're physically connected to and that that's that's different but the biggest one for sure is the fact that you're all sitting around a table and you're looking at each other um in a circle rather than all sitting in a row and looking at a screen there's also that ritual when you play a game over and over that you have a specific piece you're like that's my piece like in monopoly people be like i'm always the boot and i even think those conversations that you keep having after the game yeah it only happens because you've had you've played that game in the first place exactly and actually i've i encourage families to take that ritual another step uh, uh, further really and create a sort of game chest that kind of kind of family game chest that comes out on game nights and in that game chest you might have packs of cards and things that you could um, use you might have like spare timers and dice because you often lose that kind of thing you might have a little mascot that always sits on the game table when you're playing you might have um special meeples the meeples the wooden people are called meeples or pawns uh so that you can you know if, if you like the boot in monopoly there's no reason why you can't take the boot and put it in other games that you want to play That's true. be the boot all the time if you want to. <laughs> or you could be a little figurine that you found in a gift shop somewhere you know it, it, it's about personalizing what you're doing so that kind of family game chest with things that you get out you know when you know maybe a little score pad that you have you know it's, it just increases the ritual and makes it something special and you can do that kind of thing in school as well you know let's get the game box out let's you know when the game box when we get the game box out we also put this piece of music on for 30 seconds and everybody does this game dance for 30 seconds and you know whether it's that's the name of the game or uh, something more up to date <laughs> <laughs> it's about connection with the activity and you know putting things around it that takes again takes the pressure off who's going to win no it's not just about that it's about the experience that you're having doing the thing
what transferable skills have you learned through teaching that you could then apply to the other careers that you've had? I'm not sure if this is an answer to the skills question, but I think when you have a, not a higher purpose, but a reason for doing things of a, a personal why, you know, that drives you forward, that is ultimately transferable. So my, the, the reason I do what I do and have been for years is because I want to allow people to have a better connection with children and have a better connection with children and teenagers particularly than uh, you know than, than you might otherwise have you know teaching is to do with that teaching is about giving the be having the best opportunities for children having the best environments for children to learn and grow board games is about the same you know I'm not doing this because I not only because I love board games but because I understand the power that that has to bring you know to, to change to change families and to change people that play them um i think transferable i mean there are well if you're talking about transferable skills i mean it's there are so many things that i have done in my teaching career that i use now just so many things i mean from just sitting here talking to you today it's about communicating an idea to people and and you're trying to do that through a board game or you're trying to do that through a podcast or you're trying to do that through a book well those are things i learned in teaching you know how do you communicate whatever idea it is that you want to you know to get across to your learners they're your hardest audience ever now if you can get across to a bunch of uh, year nines why they ought to be doing drama then you can you know you then you can write a book you know it's 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 about uh you know that sort of level of communication i suppose i've learned through that you know writing has helped hugely you know i wrote my schemes of work everything from scratch i had to write i mean every single thing i wrote has built up and helped me get to the point where i am now where i'm blogging three times a week i've written a book and i write and write and write and that's a, an empowering skill to have you know, the skill of presenting being able to stand up at a conference and talk to a load of head teachers which i've done many times um, and probably will do many more times that comes from being able to stand up in front of a class and present to them you know that these are there are so many different skills that you learn and and also there are skills that you learn through board games that you then take into that you can then take into teaching and that you know these things are built up over time but each step along your way you sort of gain more to take forward and i think that's that's actually going back to where we started is part of the issue with the focus on the um, curriculum is that it misses all that which is which is the core things that you need when you get out and further on. I totally agree. I think when you're looking at kind of classroom education, if you've got a passion for those students to be involved in whatever you're doing and you've got a vision and a, and a journey that you want them it, you know, to be taken on, it's a lot more powerful than going, These, this is what we're going to be testing you on. And in six months time, that's the test. But board games are very powerful. Um, I know we sort of touched on the idea of the you know the benefits of playing board games but i think it's worth delving into that a little bit more you know and and again not just talking about games of the board and i'm not just talking about a game that four people can play it might be a whole class 
Um, but they have these uh, powers to teach skills and for students, well, not to teach them, but to, for that enables players to learn them through playing that other things don't maybe do as well. So, um, you know, the board games play, help us develop social skills. You know, we, uh, we learn how to take turns and and we learn how to be patient when it, when somebody else is making a decision. Um, sometimes that's really hard. Um, we learn to work as part of a team. We learn to negotiate, to um, to communicate ideas, to uh, compromise. Depending on what the game is, different games will have these things in different measures. Now we learn really a lot about working within a framework and working within a rule set and how we operate in those situations. So no, you can't do that because it's not part of the rules of the game. Uh, these are the rules of the game and this is what it allows you to do. There's still loads of choices to make, uh, but this oh. is the framework. And that's an important uh, concept for young people to, to, to grasp. You know, playing board games also develops skills that help us in learning. So um, memory formation, uh, logic and reasoning and processing speed, um, our sort of attention span and uh, problem solving abilities, all of these things that you gain when you're playing games. And of course, if you're trying to teach these as discrete things, um, you know, I'm not saying that you will only learn these things through games, obviously, but the power that games have is that children aren't thinking that that's what they're learning. They're just thinking about the game. And so they're doing all of this stuff without even really thinking, oh, what they're trying to teach me is this and these are the skills I'm learning. Um, and they're just naturally getting better at those things. I think one of the most interesting things uh, was when my, my eldest son, who's now 17, was, went into year two and his year two teacher said to me at the end of i don't know the first or second week she she pulled me aside when i was picking him up and said you play board games at home don't you and i said yes has he been talking about them she said no but i can tell that you play games because he approaches learning differently and she says i oh. always know how which children have played games at home she says i always know and clearly he's one i said yeah and it's just about the you know ability to look at problems differently to be comfortable with trying different things it's fascinating absolutely so are there top games that you used to do um in certain subjects like i suppose maybe drama and maths might be a little bit different or it might it might even be the same but are there certain games that you would say this is what students really enjoyed and it's a recommendation to play for teachers to start with i have written a, a blog post about games that work well for different key stages and that might give you a starting point but uh, that's that being said they are not the games that I've put there are not specifically about uh, content delivery you know they're not about what area of the curriculum can we deliver and what game is there available to deliver it through that is much better coming from the individual teachers who know the curriculum and they know what they're trying to uh, what they're trying to communicate and they're better positioned to find those games or create them themselves. Um, I used to make up lots of games for uh, maths and drama. Drama games are, I mean, there's loads of them. You can buy books of drama games. They're easy to access and drama teachers will know that. And in fact, you don't have to be a drama teacher to pick up a book of drama games and just get playing. Uh, but some of them are 
much more you know that that's much more about putting yourself out there there are a lot of acting things and not everybody feels comfortable doing that and that's certainly not what games are about in general you know putting yourself on show i mean some people have a, a you know only play games at christmas and therefore only really play kind of party games and a lot of those are reliant upon putting people on the spot and that's and or being funny or say you know doing some sort of acting thing that's not what games are in general that happens more in drama games than in other things but the math so if, if there's any math teachers out there my favorite math game uh, i created myself <laughs> so uh, it's to it's it's not for sale it's totally you know you can do this in your classroom there's nothing to buy but i have written a blog post about it so if you're interested search for number police you have a hundred square you need a hundred square in fact i had those hundred square tiles carpet tiles so that each number from one to a hundred was on a carpet tile and i would put it out on the floor clear all the desks away and put the hundred square out in individual carpet tiles you're on two teams you've got the uh, the policeman on one team and you've got the informants on the other team and the idea is that a number has committed a crime and the informants get together and you do this as half a class right so half the class uh, the informants and that half the class sort of huddles together and decides which number from one to a hundred has committed the crime and they all know what number it is and the policemen don't know what number it is and the policemen have got this hundred square in their police station it's like their suspects board and at the beginning there are a hundred suspects and then one at a time the informants are going to sidle up to a telephone <laughs> in the middle of the room but you can just mime if you want to and uh but you have to go through the whole process of doing the telephone dialing you know code and thinking and then someone in the police station different person every time will pick up the phone and say hello 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 this is the police station how may i help you of course it's a bit stereotypical but there's a little bit of fun there um and then the informant will give a clue so they'll say the number you are looking for is not a prime number and then they'll put the phone down and run away and then everyone in the police they have to have this sort of huddle and make a decision about which numbers are no longer suspect and then they'll turn over any number which is no longer a suspect and they get left with numbers face up and then that repeats so another child will go up and give a clue and of course the children that are being the informants are having to think of very that's a really good rich maths activity because they are thinking of questions which are not going to lead immediately to the answer they are thinking of questions which are going to eliminate maybe half or a third of the numbers so and aren't going to be immediately obvious now as the teacher you can restrict them in the language they use you can say to a child I want you to give a clue next can you use a clue use it can you create a clue using the words greater than or can you create a clue using the words square number for example so you can help if you need to you can differentiate as you need to and the policemen have got to do the sort of calculation and they've got to have that communication about what they're going to turn over what's no longer a suspect so and then you'll flip over and you'll get your number and you know you could have you can have it as a game so that if you actually want to decide on a you know whether they win or not you can say they've got to get it within a certain number of things uh, but you don't really need to it's just um 
you know you can just do it incrementally and it's fun it's a fun thing to do and it's very rich mathematical activities that gives you an idea about the sorts of things i was creating when i was a teacher which are really easy to do actually sounds really interesting how how are those types of games formatted differently then to the games that you produce now I suppose the biggest difference is that when I was creating games for the classroom, I wasn't bothering writing down the rules and I wasn't bothering publishing them to the point at which anybody else was going to use them necessarily. I was telling other teachers about them in training sessions, but I, and I was maybe putting a few instructions in a training book, but I wasn't publishing them so they didn't have to be perfect and they didn't have to have all the rules easily to digest, easy to digest. Now I'm publishing games that aren't curriculum specific necessarily necessarily but are um, you know usable in different situations so some of the games are in boxes and some of the games which are really good for schools are on uh, placemats and coasters so I'm, I'm, I'll hold these up to you but, but I know you can't see on the podcast but you two can see um, that so there are different uh, games on a coaster so it's a cardboard coaster the game is on one side and the rules are on the reverse so it has to be a fairly straightforward game to fit the, rever the rules just on the back of a cardboard coaster and all you need to play these is a pen and paper in some instances so, some of them don't need a pen and paper this one doesn't uh, and this one doesn't need a pen and paper there are six different ones now some of these you can pay in pairs and I started doing this video series which is coming out every Monday at the moment on how you how teachers can use each different one how you might use each different one in the classroom what the kind of curriculum you know what the learning benefits are and you know what they might do so for example this one letter market is a number sorry it's a word game and it's a great English starter activity that the whole class can do together because you, you can play with any number of players and it's a quick thing you can play in, in 10 minutes you can play a couple of rounds in five minutes you can choose what you you know how it will fit into the the arc of your lesson and then I'm also producing these games on placemats they're on a3 placemats or desk pad like single sheets of paper and each child needs a piece of paper you're going to roll some dice and you're all going to play at the same time everybody has the same dice rolls you're all going to make decisions on your own sheet of paper um, and those are ideal for lunchtime break time you know one of the things about games is that board games really appeal to some children well to many many children but they're also uh, they also tend to really appeal to, to children who have got some children have got autistic spectrum disorders and some children which have other sort of social anxieties and find it difficult to mix. So those times like playtime, uh, break time, lunch time, where the, there is free form socialising is a scary time for some children. So if you've got more formal activities that they can go and play, still play, but in a, with, a, with a rule set, that's liberating. You know, you, you go and you play a game together, you're looking at the piece of paper, you're not necessarily looking at everybody else, you're looking at the game and you're taking part and you're chatting about the game and you're doing something, but it's a structure that people that, that, that children who feel anxious in social situations can come alive in and can respond to well. So it's really good idea to have a games library at school um, that is staffed by children who know how to play the game and who, who that is inclusive and welcoming so that anybody can come and start and play a game and make sure you've got games in there that are easily accessible that you can pick up and play in 20 minutes or half an hour and, uh, and then you're going to start creating this culture of it's not just 
this this is not the only kind of play we do at this school we we're inclusive for all sorts of different uh preferences i think that's a brilliant idea i've in schools that i've worked in we've not done stuff like that normally it's focused because i'm secondary it's focused on subject specific but actually i think sometimes that can turn students off because they might want to be involved in something but they don't want to be involved in a particular subject so when it's just games or play it's seen as something fun isn't it exactly and you know there's structure there and that and it's a it's a wonderful wonderful social activity and they're going to make friends that aren't in their natural maybe you know maybe in the same classes as them as them or in the same year groups as them you know it should be completely the, the, when you've got good games it doesn't matter what year you're in you know year sevens can play with year elevens year sixes can play with year twos and you don't need to restrict it to a club for certain year groups and also you will find if you ask on your staff you will have board gamers on your staff you will they may not you may not know they are but you will have people who are involved in the board game hobby um and who play more games than you, you know, most people are shocked when they hear that last year alone there were over four thousand new games published and because what you see is such a small percentage in mainstream shops and if you don't know about all the board gaming that's happening in the country you don't you, you can't see but but you i will guarantee that if you ask on your staff there will be people that play board games as a hobby and they will gladly staff your board game club and start getting students into it and come and play games with the students as well i'm sure they'd love to do that that's you know just people that play board games want to play board games all the time in my experience i think i think i'd enjoy that at a lunchtime activity just you know getting a group of students in a room and it doesn't feel pressurized it doesn't feel like work it's a fun activity that you know it's everyone can get involved in that's because it's play yeah mm. Exactly. At schools where we've had like high deprivation levels, um, a lot of those schools that I've worked at in the past have had um, chess sets and just playing cards and dice, like you said, like a chest. But it's really basic games that anyone could play and you don't need a huge amount of knowledge to play them. And it's been really, really successful, particularly card games, because everyone has a card game that they've family plays and being able to bring that new game and teach other people is actually really empowering for a child who doesn't have a lot to give, but they can give their experience or instruction or whatever it is, their experience. Absolutely. And if you are a teacher running a board game club, you know, one of the things that you can do is you can take those children who maybe don't contribute or haven't got those family experiences or, you know, a game that they play at home. You can take them to one side, teach them that, and then they can teach other people the next time. You know, there are, there are ways to make people feel included and you can just have these, you know, small groups where you're where you're where, where you're teaching them new things but but teaching you know training up students to teach other students how to play games is a really really good thing so you just know you need a team of student game masters in your school to man the library and to teach other people games that's brilliant Ellie, as a fellow board game enthusiast, I have learned a lot today and I'm really excited to actually start playing some of the games that you've recommended. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. In Pupils Causing Concern, we're going to talk about some students that had some unsportsmanlike conduct. So Hannah, take it away. So I've got this one sent in by a teacher who has been doing clapping games with their class and apparently the clapping game goes you clap at the person to your right at the same time as them 
and then you pass, then you clap at the same time as the person on your left and then the person on your left carries it on. So they go to the next person, the next person. And the aim is to clap at the same time and get quicker and quicker around the circle. And a student requested the name of this game and the teacher said, oh, it's called Pass the Clap and didn't think anything of it. And then went into the playground at lunchtime to supervise their class. And the kids were running around after each other clapping and shouting, you've got the clap. <laughs> I, you know, I honestly thought that children wouldn't know what the clap was, but they do, don't they? They just pick up on things like that. <laughs> I'd like to think that they were just playing the game in the playground because they liked it so much in class. <laughs> <laughs> it was much more innocent than I was thinking. <laughs> Have you got another one there for us, Hannah? Yeah, so um, just someone sent in saying, why is it when I say to my class we're going to play a game, they all go, is it heads down, thumbs up? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't I know. loved that game as a child. When we got to play heads down, thumbs up, it was like the best day of school ever. I've never heard of it. And um, it seems like it's something that they must do all the time in primary school <laughs> because yes. all the children know it from primary school, but I've just never, ever played it, I don't think. We only played it really, really rarely when I was at primary school, but it was always like if you had a wet play and you'd uh, be in and the teacher would be like, right, they're running around, they're all flying off the walls because to play heads down, thumbs up, you have to put your head on the desk, put your <laughs> thumb up, and you can't look and you've got to be very quiet because you kind of want to hear where the person's going who's going to touch your thumb. And then, yeah, they touch your thumb, you put it down, and then you've got to guess who touched your thumb. Uh, that reminds me of when I was younger and my mum at any of my birthday parties was like, right, we're going to play Sleeping Lions. So all the children would lie on the floor as silently as possible and one person would go around and tickle everyone, try and, wait, try and make them move. And if you moved, you were out. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah, our version of Sleeping Lions in my house is more, let's play Sleeping Lions so that I can have a nap. <laughs> it's like that <laughs> that awful hide and seek. Yeah, you go and hide and I'll come and find you and never go to find them. <laughs> never go to find them. Have <laughs> <laughs> you got any more stories about games, Hannah? This is This is my story, actually. When I was a child, I was quite... I wasn't bothered about winning or losing I just didn't want to come last so maybe I was mm. a bit bothered about losing <laughs> but I just didn't want to come last and I was quite good at the 100 meter sprint so I was selected in year 10 in on my sports day to do the 100 meter sp sprint and I was racing against a girl who was in another form there was eight of us because there was eight forms in my school and I was racing against this other girl and me and her were kind of head to head and she was a little bit in front of me and she was my friend and she looked at me. I think she was just looking around to see if anybody was close and I smiled and she smiled back and tripped up. So I, <gasps> I won <laughs> and I, oh, no. and everybody was like, you cheated. I was like, what? I was just being kind. <laughs> I don't know what you're yeah. about. <laughs> I wasn't a great sportsman at all. And I know that's surprising because I'm Australian, but not all Australians are good at sport. I'm breaking <laughs> the stereotype. And because I'm gigantic, well, I was gigantic at 11. I'm about the same height I was when I was 11. So a fully grown person. I'd always get put on netball teams and I'd always be goalkeeper. 
And uh, my team was quite good. All the teams I played on in netball were really, really good. So I didn't really have to do a lot. So I always tried to make friends with the goal shooter, goal shooter of the other team. And I remember that my first time of realizing that girls were really competitive was a girl who wouldn't shake my hand and said, I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to annihilate you. And I was like, what? <laughs> and I was so scared. But she must have been a bit scared of me because she was half my height because it was a gigantor. Um, but yeah, she like totally kicks my ass. And I did think, I, I remember going home and having a conversation with my mom going, she, she was so mean to me. <laughs> and my dad kind of interjected and he went, that's how you're supposed to play sport, Kath. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, I've been doing it wrong all this time. I just thought you make friends with the other team. <laughs> That does remind me actually when I was I did cross country and I hated it and I did it once and the teacher never asked me to do it again so she obviously thought that because I was good at sprinting I'd be good at running long distances so we did a cross country race at my local park on a Sunday which was you know bad enough but it was wet it was freezing and it's just not my thing it was quite a long way I've got no endurance I'm good at short distances and I ended up being second to last near the end and there was a, a girl who was running and I was just running alongside of her going hi what school do you go to and just trying to have a chat with her and <laughs> you could see that the head of PE was watching me come approach the um the finishing line and she was like get in front of her get in front of her and I was like no so this girl she looked like she was struggling a lot so I just let her go in front of me um because there was kind of turnstiles at the end and it was like one person each one person in each and so I just, I stopped and I put my arms out and went, yeah, you go. And she went in front of me and I was never invited back to another cross country <laughs> run ever again. And I was so pleased with myself because I thought, well, it's good that I was so rubbish because it means I don't have to do it again. Cross country is hard. Yeah, it was up and down. It was, um, it was really difficult. It, I mean, I, I think I was about 11. So I had no attention span for it. It felt like I was running for about a week and I must have only been running for about 20 minutes. <laughs> oh, I hated cross country at school. Cross country day was always the day that my friends and I would really slack off because we never wanted to make it on the team. And then we used to compete to see who could come last. It was quite impressive how long <laughs> we could take on a cross country. <laughs> I bet your teacher was like, what am I going to do with these girls? <laughs> oh my gosh. So in any other business, I'm going to tell you about some upcoming episodes. But before I do that, I want to firstly say thank you to Ellie Dix for her interview and talk about The Dark Imp. And I've really, really enjoyed reading her book, The Board Game Family. So do check out her website and check out some of the games. The Coaster Games are great really really great resources yeah i really like the coaster games as well so ellie has given us some information about them they are 12 pence per coaster plus vat and they just sound like a really great idea to play in schools and obviously because of covid you might not want every child to share so they are cheap enough that you can give kids a coaster each and then that's a great opportunity for them to play those with their parents at home and really extend their learning and communication skills. Some teachers are buying those coasters for their classes as a present. And we've heard that some head teachers have bought those coasters as a present for their staff. So they're quite versatile. There's loads of stuff on there. We'll put a link in the description and you can find them from there. Next week is our end of half term 
episode, it's going to be a little bit different to all our other episodes because it's going to be Cake with Hannah and Kath. We first came up with this podcast idea because when we like to de-stress, we actually go and eat cake at a pub uh, near my workplace and um, th- when they see us, they actually hand us the cake menu. It's um, a little bit sad how <laughs> often we get cake. Um, but we thought it'd be a really good way to kind of celebrate half term. We're going to talk to you a little bit about some survival of COVID stories, um, some funny stories about students from this kind of really weird unprecedented times. And we're actually going to actually answer some of our famous questions that we ask all of our guests. So to lead us into that, Hannah, can you tell us about your favourite teacher? I'm going to cheat, of course. I've thought of a, a couple for different reasons. So my first favorite when i was about 11 years old i i'd always wanted to play an instrument and when i got to 11 my mum paid for private instrumental lessons so i had a teacher called tracy and she would we it was like group organ lessons and we would have these lessons and it was it was just an amazing time it was brilliant it was so much fun and there was lots of games in there there was lots of challenges but she always made me feel really special. And I know there's only seven children in the group, but we all grow, grew up together and we were all like a little family. We all learned together. We stayed together for all them years. Between the ages of 11 and 14, we stayed in the same class. And it was just a really nice nurturing environment. And thinking back, my mum always says that she's probably the reason why I went into teaching music because of the way that she inspired me. But at the time you don't notice, you just think, oh, it's just so much fun. But as an adult, it's so clear to kind of recognize the impact that those adults have, especially those constant ones on your life when you're grown up. It's really, I think it's really important. And if every student has just one person in, in their school that they can go to or that they enjoy the lessons or, you know, it's a great success story for that child and that child will remember those brilliant experiences forever. My second teacher, probably for a bit of a mischievous reason, (laughs) 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 I, I, when I was doing my A-levels, I absolutely loved media. And I think that was partly because my teacher was great and she was called Miss Bailey. And she used to tell us all these funny stories about stuff, anything to do with the topic that we were talking about. She'd talk about funny stories related to it, or she'd talk around the topic and it'd feel more like we were having a conversation adult to adult, even though I was still only 16, 17, 18. It was a time in my life where it kind of matured me because I was able to have those conversations as a class. And we were a small class with another adult. It was just a really nice experience. And I used to just love it when she, <laughs> it's probably really bad, but I used to love it when she used to tell me all the staff gossip. <laughs> <laughs> so we would find We've out. We all had that teacher. <laughs> yeah, just, it, was, it wasn't even like a big deal. It was probably, I can't even remember, but it was like, do you know whose Porsche that is in the car park? <laughs> and we'd be like, ah. whose who's is it? <laughs> so, it, you know, ah. I really enjoyed that. And I think that made me, it made me enjoy media. And I think it made me achieve in that subject and carry it on at university because 
I just thought it would be the same kind of experience. And when I did go to university, it was quite similar because obviously you're talking about emotions a lot and you're talking about your interpretation of the text or the, or the, the film or the TV uh, piece. And that was just, yeah, it was a, a really fun time. And it was one of the subjects that I took at A-level that I really, really enjoyed just because I think, I think it was the teacher. What about you? Oh, um, so I'm going to cheat too. I've got three, but I'm going to tell you about them in our next episode. (laughs) (laughs) But I can't distinguish it between the three because they're just three people who really change the way I think about the world. That's a really good one. So if you have any stories about how you've been surviving COVID or the things that have helped you get through in these strange times, please let us know. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. So you can contact us using our handle at noncontacttime, or you can email us at noncontacttime at gmail.com. Also, don't forget that we've got our Patreon subscription service where you can access episodes before everybody else, two days before everyone else. You can also get ad-free episodes and there's also bonus content on there. So we've done some extra stuff for the five pounds and up patrons and they can access some extra resources. So there's that. And there's also the ACAST supporter tool, which is at the very beginning of this episode. So if you would like to donate to get Kath a microphone, please have a look at the link in the episode description. We really appreciate all the feedback we get from our listeners and we really appreciate everyone that interacts with us. We've been so lucky with all of our listeners. So thank you so, so much for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.